Hi everybody, this is Tracy Malone and today we are going to talk with my friend Sherry Heller. Sherry is a therapist and an author, writer. She's got the most amazing blog on medium.com. We'll put the link down below, but today we are talking about um, self-blame after narcissistic abuse. So many victims struggle with did I do something wrong? It's my fault. I shouldn't have done that. All of that self-blame is really the narcissist voice echoing in your head. And today, Sherry and I are going to discuss the the evilness of the narcissist and the, the damage that it does to our soul when we are self-blaming ourselves. So let's go meet Sherry and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome, Sherry. I am so glad to see you again. It is always a pleasure to see you. Um, we're going to talk about um, self-blame and self-punishment when victims of abuse often just like, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. Or, you know, if I had only, mm-hmm. you know, you experience clients with this sort of thing as well. Can, can we talk about self-blame and self-punishment? Absolutely. I mean, this is where I find most of my clients get stuck. Um, Even when they've gone no contact or they have very low contact, they ruminate. Some people can ruminate for years over what they did wrong. Um, Over even though they can um, delineate the most egregious, most disgusting forms of abuse, um, physical, emotional, psychological they still want to retain a sense of the narcissist as someone who has an iota of humanity. It's very difficult to conceptualize someone as the embodiment of evil. I think this is where everything gets tripped up because they're scoffed at. I mean, I think on a cultural level, it's looked upon as being extremist. It's looked upon as, you know, almost being uh like it's a mythic idea um human evil although we all have the potential for human evil when we talk about the malignancy of a narcissist they are actually tactical and strategic with wanting to break someone down so that they can control them and dominate them so being involved of course with the love bombing stage the target is enraptured and then there's the that initial moment of being blindsided by something that seems completely out of left field. And that's where the breakdown begins. So we lead with this kind of moral imperative, what's called like a positivity uh, bias, like a confirmation bias that, okay, something's happened. We, you know, we need to work it through. I need to take accountability. We need to sort out whose property is whose. And that will strengthen our intimacy and that will resolve things. That is what puts the victim at risk with a narcissist because the narcissist is never interested in accountability. What they're interested in is insinuating that the full responsibility resides in the the issues or the insecurities of the target. The target is always um responsible they and so there's something vladimir lenin said the russian politician that uh repetitive lies eventually become truths Mm -hmm. so when you're repetitively 
repetitively told that you've done something wrong, eventually you start believing it, you know, and that's on the most kind of obvious baseline level of why the targets of supply assume blame mm -hmm. in the in the relationship. It becomes more complicated when trauma bonding kicks in, pathological attachment. Um, and that's where the power submission starts to really take hold and to ward off the feelings of underlying terror that the supply really feels. They yield, they defer, they abdicate their perceptions. They actually develop cognitive dissonance, become extremely confused um, because they're dealing with someone who is always mirroring back to them that they are um, that they are not accurate with their perceptions. So there's a lot of gaslighting, actually setting them up to believe that what they thought was real wasn't real, that in fact they didn't say these things, or that never happened, or in fact this is what happened. And it's it's very um, calculated and there are um, stages in the abuse in which the supply is isolated from supports, um, you know, and this is why it's so difficult for, I think, kind of um, people who have never been exposed to this kind of abuse to understand why the person who is victimized by the narcissist is so malleable, becomes so malleable. And, and unfortunately, many of the people who are formerly supports actually end up colluding with the narcissist. What do you mean by colluding? Well, I've had clients who said, you know, um, who are going no contact, that someone, a friend of the narcissist called them to remind them that it's the narcissist's birthday or that they're concerned the narcissist is sad um the <laughs> supply you know is is stepping away or perhaps you know there'll be even more egregious a smear campaign mm -hmm. so and and that will come through the grapevine so the the victim or the the person the survivor really at that point is trying to extricate themselves and now they have to deal with people condemning them behind their back so, and that often will pull someone back in because even just trying to redeem yourself becomes a form of supply for the narcissist. Mm. And it's, it's bait. Mm -hmm. It baits the person back into the web. So the, the blame, I mean, becomes the locus of control. You know, I've got to look at how do I regain agency? How do I regain power? How do I regain a sense of control? amid this chaos, how do I establish some kind of order here? So we we try to look at um, what is it about me characterologically? What is it about me behaviorally that is somehow contributing to this? Or And that's the point of what, do, what did I do wrong? Or also when I was, um, when I used to work with rape survivors at a, at a hotline with um, many years ago in New York, that was a very common symptom for survivors and trying to regain gain a sense of control. I've walked down the wrong street. Um, I need better locks on my window. Or was I so naive? Um, and it is part of the process of really trying to regain 
some kind of um, stability. But with victims of narcissistic abuse, it can go on for years. Yeah. And that's, that's the problem is, is it's, yes. again, it's, it's ingrained. I, I was just telling a group I worked with this morning, it's, it's how our neurons are wired. If we look under the desk where our computer is, there's a whole lot of wires, right? And that's what your brain is. And so even though you can start to clear off and understand who they were, the recordings are still floating on those wires. And if we don't recognize them, they become imprinted on us and we're doing it to ourselves, even though maybe the narcissist isn't here anymore. So right. sort of self-blame can go on for years and years even if you knew that the relationship was a bad one and that you don't want this person, yeah. you still eat that for breakfast, you know, yeah. bring it into another relationship or it morphs into your work life or other parts of your life because that recording is just floating through the wires. Yeah. And this is so true, especially for uh, victims who had narcissistic parents because they were groomed at such an early age, and as you said, that the term imprinting to insinuate that one's attachment template becomes so mired in power and submission that a person um, doesn't even have rules of engagement or conditions. You know, I often ask people about, would you, let's, let's look at how you operate in the world. Would you treat someone like this would you um this is kind of what helped me recently with a situation i shared with you that i had where i was blindsided by someone who i thought was a friend and i had to ask myself wait a second <laughs> i do not play these mind games why would i accommodate this but it's so almost natural to go back into okay um, if someone is saying they want to try to address an issue, and that's what a narcissist will do or an abuser will do, it feels like the right thing to do. It's a moral imperative. But it's so crucial to pull back and ask oneself, wait a second, um, what am I willing to accommodate? Would I expect someone to accommodate this in me? No, I wouldn't even act that way. Mm -hmm. So it is almost having to get back to a place of remembering, wait, these are my standards. Standards get lost with trauma bonding. Conditions, boundaries are completely lost mm -hmm. because the victim over-identifies with the abuser in order to return to a state of um, false safety and false hope mm -hmm. because it is too terrifying to recognize that you're involved with someone who is the embodiment of human evil. So this is where people, I think, I'd rather blame myself, essentially. This is what comes across to me with a lot of my clients who are stuck in this place. I'd rather blame myself than face that there is this kind of unpredictability and danger in the world and that I was so close to it. Yes. Yeah. Because when you really face it, it, it truly is horrifying. And as much as you try to understand it, as you were saying, like trying to, we all become detectives when we're victims of narcissistic abuse, you can't ever really quite understand it. I mean, as much as I understand it intellectually on a cerebral level, I have humanity. I have a moral compass. I can't imagine what it's like to not have that, to be so driven, to become dysphoric if I'm not able to dehumanize another human being, 
Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't really wrap my head around that. Mm-hmm. Only on a very, like on a very kind of cognitive level, mm-hmm. but certainly when you do connect with it emotionally, when you realize that you've been nothing but a pawn, that's where tremendous um, anxiety, panic, grief, rage kicks in. Mm-hmm. And the rage is sometimes so hard to let go of. Uh, again, I've had people 10 years past their divorce and they're just seething inside because they haven't done the work to, to, to really tap into that and understand and, and maybe take some of the blame off themselves because partially they are blaming themselves. How could I stay? How could yeah. I move? How could I have children with them? How could I? How could I? And yeah. that's keeping the rage fire going. Right. If you don't like let go and forgive yourself for those, you know, I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it will be part of your DNA to hold that rage for longer than you should. Right. Yeah. There's also the part of the rage, I think, is also the feelings of humiliation. Mm. And I hear that a lot that um, going into sort of what Judith Herman, who wrote Trauma and Recovery, she talked about the um, compensation fantasy. Like, well, if, uh, if I could see him suffer, I'll feel better. Or, you know, if, uh, if I knew that she was destitute, I'd feel better. So it gets into like these kinds of fixations on that's going to be, uh, the source of salvation. And it's not because, you know, hate is a painful emotion to hold on to. It has to be assimilated. It has to be worked through. It's a organic response to unbelievable betrayal but getting locked into it, I mean, it is, as you were saying, it is part of the self-blame. Okay, I'm going to blame them now. And, you know, but it's still keeping that blame alive. Mm-hmm. Hold them accountable. They're responsible. Yes, but you do have to forgive yourself for being a mark. And anyone could be a mark for narcissistic abuse. Some people are more malleable than others. That's true. I think people who are groomed to to abdicate the certain uh, personal sense of agency or who are exploited by parents, narcissistic parents, um, certainly are targets. Um, but a narcissist loves a challenge. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I shared with you, I have a client who's a police officer, a really, really incredibly smart, competent human being, a very caring human being. And he can't believe that he was targeted by this female narcissist and uh and just like everyone else he's having to dismantle the trauma bond and to really break through the fog the cognitive dissonance and to reestablish a sense of stability in his life mm-hmm. yeah I, I i'm always shocked by the unsuspectingness of the different types of victims you know they, they are you know when i thought of abuse growing up I thought of someone with a black eye, a broken rib and, you know, physical abuse. I, that's how I just, you know, that's what I learned. I didn't know there was anything because I was living in a house with it. No one ever was going to teach me what it was. But yeah. the reality is that I think this and, and I've had people that have been punched in broken ribs and they'd write, I'll take the broken rib over this emotional stuff. Yeah really gets into your your cells and it and it again it turns you into someone who would self-blame someone who has no self-awareness because everything was lost from all of this abuse and it's insidious 
Yeah, and that's the end game. The end game is dehumanization, to reduce a person to nothing and then throw them away, but occasionally use them when the on the narcissist whims. And the um the realization of that is incomprehensible. I think that's why a lot of people have Cassandra syndrome. They're not believed. They feel um if they if they live in a world in which others are scoffing at their the reality that's unfolding before them, then how do they believe their own pain? How do they validate their own suffering? And I mean, I think this is why survivors have to um, find each other in order to heal, because you you can't explain this kind of psychological abuse. It is warfare. It is it is thought control. It is it, these are tactics that are. Um, learned in special forces. I mean, this is how the CIA, you know, gets, extracts uh, information from people. Mm -hmm. um, this is serious. I mean, it, it takes a, a kind of psychopathic mind to be able to break someone down to nothing. Mm -hmm. And that, and you think that looks a certain way. You think of, you know, Charles Manson, or you think of someone who fits kind of a mold um, of what, what evil might look like but it's not that at all i mean look at ted bundy who is very charming right the serial killer running for senate and that's part of the self-blame as well the impression management wait a second no this can't be possible people like him or people uh, she's such a good mother on the outside she she's so polished or she's uh goes to church I mean, I have a client who told me about his parents who were constantly always in church and um, the, his mother had marks on her neck. Of course, she would cover it up with a scar from the father strangling her. She was also a narcissist as well. And uh, and they would deny it. It never happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and we're looking now at, you know, he, it is interesting because it's almost like, okay, there is, there's a sense of truth. I know who this person is. They're they're not good people. Um, but there isn't that sense of conviction that they're really bad people. You know, it's it's this kind of mushy middle. Yeah. And they have behind the diagnosis, whether they have one or not. Oh, you know, it's because they're a narcissist or it's because they're this, or, you know, it's, no. it's, it's making that the excuse. There's no excuse for abuse. And yet when we're sitting here and we're justifying, a lot of times it has to do with, oh, well, I have compassion because they've got this illness. and They just don't know how to love. No, that's a difference between not knowing how to love and knowing how to kill a soul. Right. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people struggle with knowing how to love, sure, but that doesn't mean they don't have compassion or empathy. And I often talk about that, too, with differentiating um, a narcissist from someone who has borderline pathology, because borderlines can also, out of a sense of severe abandonment, panic, and a need for control, do terrible things, but essentially have remorse. Um, although there are people with borderline pathology who also have comorbidity, who have severe narcissistic traits or even MPD. The, the qualifier here is when someone really could care less, whether um, you're in pain or not, mm -hmm. um, whether you're suffering. And 
that is where I think, you know, people get stumped when they say is, as you were pointing out, well, there it's a mental illness. It's like, look, this is a very surreal kind of mental illness. Sure. It's a mental illness. It's, it's a spectrum disorder, but there, I think in the, there was a lot of speculation in the, with the APA, the American Psychological Association with the DSM-5, the diagnostic manual to um, assign narcissistic um, pathology to a spiritual disorder category. Wow. Because when we're talking about someone with MPD, they really, it's a level of moral depravity. It's not just about not knowing how to love. They have no intention of loving. Loving is the idea of love. It's, it's a tool to lure people in. It is designed because, because we essentially need love. I mean, one could say, well, at the at the core, the narcissist needs love. I mean, look, I I used to think you could treat a narcissist in my naive days. You know, um, I know that is that is such a uh, dangerous mindset that um, maybe maybe they can respond to some forms of operant conditioning that's used in prison systems, but you can't manufacture a humanity that isn't there. You can't create a soul that isn't there. So, but even as I'm saying it, I could, I can understand how people would look at me like, that's crazy. You know, that just, but that's what the victim has to come to okay. in order to dismantle the blame, to dismantle the trauma bond and to begin the work of complicated bereavement. Otherwise they will stay in this place of self-condemnation forever. So tell me what is complicated bereavement because I know we talked about it before this and I know a lot of people don't know. So can we share that? Because this is how we get out of this. Right, so complicated bereavement is different than regular bereavement in that it is uh, pertaining not just to the literal loss of a relationship, a relationship in which one can never have closure essentially, but the loss of self, <clears throat> the loss of personal dignity, the loss of safety, the loss of time, um, the loss of potentials. Many of my clients who say, wow, they were with someone during a period of their life where they were most capable of having children. Mm -hmm. They can't go back to that. Mm -hmm. um, there are, there's, there's financial loss. There's loss of you know, monetary assets, there is, I mean, it runs the gamut. I mean, but mostly it is a loss of self, there's a breakdown of self, especially if the abuse is so severe that one incurs not just complex trauma, but some people even have dissociative identity, people who I've worked with whose parents or involvement with family members or with spouses who are actually psychopaths. Mm -hmm. um, where the abuse was so extreme and so methodical and so diabolical that they just rub, there's a ruptured sense of who they are. Mm -hmm. So uh, with complicated bereavement, there's a lot of trapped grief, a lot of trapped rage. There's a lot of denial that has to be worked through. And it's about assimilating everything that happened and creating a cohesive narrative so that one can first make sense out of what happened 
and actually in some i guess in a very literal way grieve what died for them mm -hmm. because there is a death and in a way there's also a transformation because in that place of defeat one recognizes that they were naive they they held on to naive beliefs about people that were all really indoctrinated to to believe that everyone is good mm -hmm. um that any anything can be resolved all things can be resolved and that changes one's worldview so there's even a death of a kind of innocence you know or a sense of trust suddenly you know one has to become more cynical after something like this because they're, they're protection to become more and less trusting but at the same time we still have to not give up all trust and absolutely that umbrella because that's another hell hole of i'll never trust again and you limit your life because of this because if that happens then the poison worked right then they got right. you are not going to live that life after them and so building those things are important but also guarding that trust and being real yeah. not to give it away again like we did, probably did with the narcissist yeah that's so important tracy the rebuilding that you um yeah that you retain a sense of faith in humanity um that there are people who are good and unfortunately those people who are good are targeted by narcissists who want to usurp their light and covet <laughs> um it's almost like a fierce warrior type of thing you know i feel like we have to embody that part of that self that archetype where there is a sort of um a retention of of what we truly value kindness you know and compassion and generosity but recognizing that there is darkness in the world and that there are people in the world who are truly dangerous and we need to protect ourselves from them we really do um this has been so enlightening did we miss anything uh you know i think we've covered basically everything i think um I wish, I guess the one thing I want to say, which is something you and I have talked about, I wish more clinicians were able to reflect these truths back to victims who come to them on the heels of this kind of abuse. Because so often I encounter um, victims who are who are seeking recovery, who say that they've been re-traumatized by being told that they are uh just extremist in their views or that they they're because they're so symptomatic also they are often misdiagnosed mm. you know with with character pathology themselves <clears throat> because the fragmentation really is so unsettling that it does create such a mass array of symptomology and and I think this is so important for clinicians to look at. It, it it would help so many people because 
I too have those stories and, and the, the, you know, the non-belief and the, you know, it's a different love language. And, and while that's all fluffy and nice, and I'm all in favor of love languages, when you're dealing with that evil, when you're dealing with someone who has no empathy for you and is willing to do anything to destroy you, yeah. love languages don't play that game. Like, it's like, do you like gifts or do you like this? Yeah totally different things and that really messes them because then the victim is going oh did I do something wrong why was he why was he or she so mean and oh you know and they put the blame back on themselves because yeah. if I had only known their love language then they would be different no they won't you can't make right. an orange become an apple it just mm -hmm. doesn't... Yeah. yeah yeah all right, Absolutely. last question for you. Tell people how they can learn more about you. I am going to put your, the link to your website down below as well as the link to this article on medium.com, which wow. is amazing. And, and like, I want everyone to read it. It is highlighted half the paper ran out of ink in my highlighter because it was so good. So tell us where they can find you. Please uh, go to my website at sherrytherapist.com. I spell my name S-H-E-R-I. I am now in Montreal, Canada. I'm a, a recent transplant from New York City, and I am actually putting together a group for survivors of narc abuse in Montreal. So um, I would love to work with people here, as well as continue working with people in the States and everywhere. So I'd love to hear from you. Nice. Well, everybody, please check out her stuff. Check out her work. I mean, her... Her medium blogs are so powerful that she's got one and you've got it on our site too called the denial of evil. I'll actually put that link in here too um, because it's exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah. And um, it was about the, the psychological world not um, seeing and witnessing and understanding that this evil, that it does exist. So yeah, thank you so much for being here. It was great to see you. Great to see you. Bye. Well, I hope you guys found that helpful. Sherry is a wealth of information. As I said, I will put the link in the show notes down below for her Medium blog. Please go read the one that we're talking about, about self-blame and self-punishment. If you are struggling with this recordings in your head or putting yourself down, uh, these are not things you need to hold. You need to learn to let go and learn to um, know that this wasn't your fault. You didn't do anything wrong, you know, and if you did stay too long, had children with them, whatever you, it was that you're blaming yourself for, let that go. You didn't know what a narcissist was. You stayed for the children. You, you had reasons. And so if you can forgive yourself, it's one less attachment to all of that self-blame. So this is Tracy Malone. I'm the founder of NarcissistAbuseSupport.com. If you've made it this far and you like my video, please um, click like or subscribe. And we will see you again soon. Thank you so much.